On March 25, 1943, a brand new Fletcher-class destroyer rolled down the ways at Seattle-Tacoma shipyard. The U.S. built 175 of them in two years. That's pretty much one every four days. And it wasn't just in Washington state either. They had additional shipyards in New Jersey, Maine, South Carolina, Texas, Alabama, New York, and California. But this particular one would be DD-557. Her name was the USS Johnston, and her skipper was Commander Ernest E. Evans, a 35-year-old full-blooded Cherokee from Pawnee, Oklahoma. The Fletcher class was the best destroyer of the war. Displacing a mere 2,700 tons, she mounted five superb five-inch naval guns, two forward of the twin stacks and three more aft of them. The Fletchers were constructed entirely of three-quarter-inch steel plate. The turrets, the superstructure, even the sides of her hull were no thicker than the steel on the decks. Small wonder, then, that destroyer crews referred to their unarmored ships as tin cans. Now, each of the Fletcher's five five-inch turrets had a number. Turrets 51 and 52 were forward of the stacks, 53 and 54 were behind them, and turret 55 right at the stern. Now, while their five-inch guns could barely scratch the paint on the 12 to 24 inches of steel armor lining the sides of enemy cruisers and battleships, the Fletchers did carry a weapon that could kill a capital ship, her Mark 15 torpedoes. A 10-fish spread from a Fletcher-class destroyer was a deadly threat. Now, Johnson also mounted six depth charge projectors, three on each side, and an additional two right at the fantail. She had good anti-aircraft guns, too, but ultimately, the destroyer's only real defense was its small size, its excellent maneuverability, and most especially, her speed, which in this case was 35 knots. Now, by late October, she was ready to go, and she was commissioned on Navy Day, October 27th, marking the 168th birthday of the United States Navy. Captain Evans assembled his new crew just aft of the number five turret and spoke slowly and clearly into a microphone so that those gathered on shore could hear him as well. This is going to be a fighting ship. I intend to go in harm's way, and anyone who doesn't want to go along had better get off right now. Then his voice softened a little, almost as if he was speaking to himself, and he added, Now that I have a fighting ship, I will never retreat from an enemy force. He meant it. Two days short of her first birthday, the wreckage of USS Johnson would lie 20,000 feet below the surface of the Pacific Ocean. On June 15, 1944, the United States began the conquest of the Mariana Islands with an assault on Saipan. When it came time for the Marines to go ashore on Guam, Evans drove USS Johnston almost to the surf line, so close to shore that it took rifle and pistol fire from the Japanese troops. Evans would cruise up and down the landing beaches, firing all five of his turrets with such fury, frequency, and intensity that the barrels would glow red. 
He'd fire every shell he had on board, and when all five guns had run out of ammunition, he raced DD-557 to her top speed of 35 knots and headed out to the supply ships for more ammo. On two separate occasions, the denial of his request for more five-inch shells caused the Johnston skipper to get in a ship's boat and motor over to the supply officer to argue the case in person. Damity said they need fire support and we're going to give it to them. Evans was fortunate to have a truly talented gunnery officer. Lieutenant Bob Hagen was as much a stickler for drills, repetition, and training as a skipper was. They ended up running so many general quarters drills at all hours of the day and night that pretty soon the crew was referring to DD-557 as GQ Johnny. Hagen was on the gun director's platform on one pass when Captain Evans brought his tin can so close to shore that the sailors aboard went below for rifles and one of his officers started shooting at the plainly visible Japanese troops with his 45. Using the powerful optics normally used to put shells many miles out to sea, Hagen saw a Japanese officer standing on the beach, waving his sword and exhorting his men to rush the American positions in a suicide charge. Hagen centered the crosshairs and he closed the firing key. All five turrets fired simultaneously and the Japanese officer was blown to atoms. Mr. Hagen, that's very good shooting. You heard his skipper say over the intercom, but in the future, try not to waste so much ammunition on a single individual. Now, traditionally, the destroyer was the smallest surface combatant, but by 1943, the U.S. Navy had so many merchant ships and tankers to protect that there simply were not enough destroyers to go around. And so the DE, the Destroyer Escort, was born. Destroyers traditionally screened larger ships like carriers, battleships, and cruisers. The destroyer escort was never, ever intended for that kind of surface action. Its main mission was to protect merchant convoys from enemy submarines. Now, broadly speaking, if you took a Fletcher-class destroyer and broke it in half, you'd have two Butler-class destroyer escorts. The Fletchers had five turrets, the Butlers had two. The Fletchers carried ten torpedoes, while the Butlers carried only three. The Butler-class destroyer escort did, in fact, look like a bathtub toy. In the onboard newsletter of one of the DEs, the USS Samuel B. Roberts, they published the following exchange. A visitor to the Sammy B. came aboard one day and was shocked by its small size. He looked around nervously and asked the captain, Captain, how often does a little ship like this sink? Usually just once, he replied. The Japanese battleship Yamato weighed in at 71,000 tons. She mounted top secret 18.1 inch guns and she carried nine of them in three triple turrets, two forward of the superstructure and one to the stern. Each gun had an incredible maximum range of 26 miles. And there wasn't just one of these monsters either. Her identical twin, Musashi, was commissioned eight months after Yamato and because these twin super battleships were so priceless, both in terms of sunk resources and especially national pride, they spent most of the war riding at anchor. The two miracle weapons built to win Japan's naval battles were too miraculous to be sent into battle. 
The officers and men who'd been so proud to be assigned to the Emperor's flagship began to scornfully refer to her as the Hotel Yamato. Now, ever since Admiral Togo had wiped out the entire Russian fleet on a single day at the Battle of Tsushima in May of 1905, the Imperial Japanese Navy had been utterly enthralled to what they called Kantai Kesen, the doctrine of decisive battle. One day, one day soon, Japan would gather all of its naval might into a single steel fist. Yamato and Musashi would finally be unsheathed. And at the end of that one day of decisive battle, the American Navy would be wiped out, gone at the bottom of the ocean, as surely as the Russian fleet had been wiped out at Tsushima. The Japanese had sorted to try to stop the Americans in the Marianas, but cautious, careful Ray Spruance didn't take the bait. Spruance had ended up sinking three Japanese carriers in the Battle of the Philippine Sea, but what was even more important was what he and his carrier pilots did to the Japanese aircraft sent to attack him. In the course of a single afternoon, American pilots downed over 600 enemy aircraft against 123 losses of their own. They called it the Great Marianas Turkey Shoot. It was a grievous loss, but the aircraft could be replaced. What could not be replaced were the air crews. Landing on the deck of an aircraft carrier is the most difficult feat in all of aviation, and admirals watching cadets training in the safety of Japan's inland sea would look out in dismay as undertrained students crashed into or behind the carriers with appalling frequency. By October of 1944, the Japanese had been forced to face the fact that without their air crews, their once vaunted carriers were worthless. Well, maybe not completely worthless. They might provide a final service. As the American invasion fleet sped to the island of Leyte in the southern Philippines, the Japanese knew that this would be their last real chance for Kantai Kesen, the decisive battle. Now, providing the muscle for the American invasion was Admiral Bill Halsey's third fleet, comprised mostly of new, powerful, and fast Essex-class fleet carriers. Nothing, not even Yamato and Musashi, would be able to survive that kind of American air power. Halsey wasn't Spruance. Halsey was the opposite of Spruance, a man who'd missed the Battle of Midway and who more than anything in the world wanted to fight with Japanese carriers that had eluded him for the entire war. Now, without air crews, those carriers were worthless, but Halsey didn't know that. The Japanese plan for the invasion of the Philippines was called Shogo One, or Victory Plan One. And like most Japanese war planning, it was overly complicated and too dependent on everything being in exactly the right place at exactly the right time. It consisted of three main elements. First, a northern force under Admiral Jisaburo Ozawa would sail well to the north of the Lady Landing Beaches with the now useless carriers. He would want to be detected. Those carriers were bait. Shogo One bet the farm on Halsey going after that carrier force, and as it turned out, the Japanese knew their man. Now at the same time, two obsolete Japanese battleships, Fuso and Yamashiro, under the command of Admiral Shoji Nishimura, would approach Leyte Gulf from the south through the Surigao Straits, 
tying up the American battleships and cruisers. Both the northern and southern forces were sacrifices. They were decoys to draw away the massive American superiority around the landing beaches in Leyte Gulf. If both Ozawa and Nishimura succeeded in drawing them away, however, the main strike would come from Admiral Takeo Kurita's center force. Five battleships, including both Yamato and Musashi, 10 heavy cruisers, two light cruisers, and 15 destroyers. With Halsey and his carriers hopefully off on his wild goose chase, they would plunge through the San Bernardino Strait at the top of Samar Island and steam south to sink the American transports. Now, many Japanese officers and sailors found this to be a dishonorable duty, but at this point, blasting the transports out of the water was the only thing they might conceivably still achieve with the forces that they had remaining. If they were successful, new carriers and new air crews would have time to come into service. You must remember there are such things as miracles, Kurita told his disheartened officers. What man can say that there's no chance for our fleet to turn the tide of war in a decisive battle? The clockwork mechanisms of Shogo-1 had been wound tight and placed on the map. Nothing could stop them now. The day that every Japanese sailor had been waiting for, the day of Kante Kesson, the decisive battle, would be October 25th, 1944. Now, just north of the landing beaches in Leyte Gulf, Admiral Clifton Sprague, known universally as Ziggy Sprague, was holding what he must have thought was the most unglamorous bag in the entire fleet. The six flat tops in each of Ziggy Sprague's three task forces were not CVs, the big Essex-class carriers that were now closing the book on the Japanese Empire. Sprague's 18 flat tops were CBEs, escort carriers. An Essex carrier could carry anywhere from 90 to 100 fighter and bomber aircraft at an incredible 32 knots. They took about 18 months to build and cost about $75 million apiece. The Casablanca class escort carriers, on the other hand, could carry only 28 aircraft at a miserable 19 knots, but they could be built in about five months and cost a mere $6 million each. The Kaiser Shipyard in Washington State could build 12 at a time. Now, like the destroyer escorts, the escort carriers were never meant for a stand-up fight. They were designed to ferry aircraft, provide anti-submarine air cover for convoys, or to attack ground targets. To save time, steel, and money, they were completely unarmored and lacked most of the watertight compartments that made the Essex carriers so hard to put down. They were never intended to be put in harm's way, and their survivability was so poor that their crews would say that the CVE designation stood for combustible, vulnerable, and expendable. They were so small and so stripped down that they were universally known as Jeep carriers. Sprague, had grouped them into three task forces of six CVEs each. Task Force 1 would be closest to the landing beaches, then Task Force 2 further to the north, and finally Task Force 3 off the northern tip of Samar Island. They would be flying anti-submarine patrols and attacking Japanese personnel at and behind the landing beaches. 
protected by Halsey's mighty fleet carriers to the north and Admiral Jesse Oldendorf's gun club of battleships and cruisers to the south, none of the slow, frail Jeep carriers, known by their radio call signs as Taffy 1, Taffy 2, and Taffy 3, were in any danger whatsoever. The largest naval battle in human history would be fought as four separate engagements over three days along with a brief overture. If you were to rope off the entire battle of Leyte Gulf, you would need over 1,500 miles of yellow police tape encompassing 120,000 square miles. Now, the overture to the Symphony of Destruction will begin just after midnight on October 23rd, as Admiral Carita's powerful center force crossed the long, thin barrier island of Palawan. Two American fleet submarines, USS Darter and USS Dace, detected the center force that evening, and just after dawn the next day, they both launched attacks that sank heavy cruisers Atago and Maya and critically damaged a third, the Takao that limped back to port with two destroyers as escort. Before the battle proper had even begun, Carita had lost three of his 10 heavy cruisers plus the two destroyers. Atago happened to be Carita's flagship. The commander of Center Force found himself swimming for his life when she went down before being picked up by a destroyer and transferring his flag to the Yamato. It was not a good start. On the 24th, they continued towards San Bernardino Strait, where Halsey was waiting for them. The Northern Force was doing everything they could short of shooting up flares in order to be detected and pull Halsey away, but to no avail. On the 24th, Halsey hit the Center Force with 259 aircraft attacking over three waves. Musashi took almost all of this. By the end of the day, she had fallen well behind Karita survivors and was so far down by the bow that her massive turrets looked like islands rising out of the sea. Karita sailed grimly on. With two more destroyers detached to assist Musashi, Karita realized that Shogo-1 had failed. To continue would just mean the destruction of what remained of the center force, which was about all that Japan had left. So, at 3.30 on the afternoon of October 24th, Admiral Karita ordered center force to turn back and head for home. As they doubled back, however, Center Force passed the massive Musashi. She had taken 17 direct hits from American bombers and an unbelievable 19 torpedoes, but she was still afloat. She would finally capsize and go under just after 7.30 that evening, but the sight of her seemed to rally Kurita, who decided to turn a second time and head back into the battle, come what may. And then, Karita got his miracle. Just after American reconnaissance planes had radioed that they had mortally wounded the Musashi and that the center force was retreating, came the electrifying news that three Japanese flattops had been spotted to the north. Certain that the center force had been defeated, Halsey took his fleet carriers and his fast battleships and he made a run for them at flank speed. At dawn on the morning of October 25th, 1944, 
the crews in the northernmost task force, Taffy 3, were preparing for another routine day. A little before 7 a.m., the klaxon horn aboard USS Johnston sounded general quarters. They were station keeping at the rear of the formation directly behind the Jeep carrier USS Gambier Bay. Suddenly, gigantic plumes of water were appearing all around her somewhere. Green, some yellow, reds, blues. It was actually very pretty. The Japanese shells had die markers so that the spotters, correcting the aim, could know which ship was firing based on the color. It was surreal and it was beautiful. And behind them, the entire northern horizon seemed to be on fire. Lookouts aloft reported a single gray shape on the horizon, but in the space of a few moments, more of them appeared. The first sighting had been the upper superstructure of the massive Yamato, and then more mast tops kept appearing until they seemed to cover the entire surface of the Pacific. Two miles off Johnson's port beam was the destroyer escort Samuel B. Roberts. Her skipper, Robert Copeland, had gotten a good look at what was behind them. He keyed the mic and he addressed the entire ship and he said, A large Japanese fleet has been contacted. They are 15 miles away and headed in our direction. They're believed to have four battleships, eight cruisers, and a number of destroyers. This will be a fight against overwhelming odds from which survival cannot be expected. We will do what damage we can. Now, from the bridge of the Yamato, Kurita could see six flat tops surrounded by a screen of smaller ships just at the horizon. Spread out before him, Kurita believed, were Halsey's fast carriers screened by cruisers. He had managed to do what no admiral on either side had been able to do since the start of the war, and that is get within gun range of enemy aircraft carriers. Now, through the action of divine providence, Yamato and the rest of his big guns would have a chance to do what she had been built to do. At 6.59 a.m. on the morning of October 25th, 1944, Yamato let fly nine 18.1-inch shells, each one of which weighed 3,000 pounds. We are engaging enemy in gun battle. The exuberantly radioed combined fleet headquarters back in Tokyo. By heaven-sent opportunity, we are dashing to attack the enemy carriers. Now, Japanese ship recognition cards had no silhouette for the Jeep carriers. Very few of the officers present aboard Yamato had ever seen one before. Kurita's targets were not Halsey's fleet carriers, five knots faster than his super battleship. They were escort carriers, Jeep carriers. And at full steam, they would be a full eight knots slower. Taffy 3 had no chance whatsoever to escape. They were sitting ducks. Ernest Evans stepped out to the open-air walkway just outside the bridge. Every ship in Taffy 3 was accelerating to flank speed and running as fast as they could, but Evans could see that this was pointless. A long stern chase would simply give the Japanese time to casually blow the escort carriers to pieces and then make mincemeat of the destroyers and the destroyer escorts. When Evans re-entered the small pilot house, Johnston's gunnery officer, Bob Hagen, got one good look at his captain's face and he suddenly felt sick. He knew his skipper well. He knew well enough what the look on his face meant. He would later say that Evans made his announcement with such calm assurance that Hawkins was convinced he'd been rehearsing the words his entire life. And here's what he said. 
All hands to general quarters, prepare to attack a major portion of the Japanese fleet. All engines ahead flank, commence making smoke and prepare for torpedo attack, left full rudder. With dense black smoke billowing from her twin stacks, USS Johnston started a hard turn to the left as her twin propellers bit into the water and her bow wake turned white with foam. Yamato alone weighed more than all six of Tappy 3's Jeep carriers and its seven escorts combined. As he came out of his turn and ran the American tin can up to her top speed of 35 knots, he could see 29 enemy warships closing fast and easily, the most powerful enemy surface fleet ever encountered. And then he began his attack. Bob Hagen was doing the math in his head. He estimated the range to the nearest enemy ship to be about 35,000 yards, that's 20 statute miles. His five-inch guns would not be in range until they'd close to 18,000 yards or 10 miles. And for the torpedo attack to have any kind of a chance, they'd have to get inside 10,000 yards, let's say five miles. Now that meant a long sprint before he could use his guns and then another one half the length to get into torpedo range. The guns would have zero effect on the armored hulls of anything out there, but they could play hell on the lightly armored superstructure, so that's where he'd be aiming. Hagen lowered his head and whispered a little prayer. Please, sir, let us not go down before we fire our torpedoes. Ernest Evans had placed his destroyer squarely between the biggest Japanese ships and the rest of Taffy 3, pouring huge clouds of smoke as he did so to hide Taffy 3's jeep carriers. Hagen tried to describe the expression on his skipper's face. His heart was grinning, was about as close as he could get. At 10 past 7, an 8-inch round from one of the rapidly closing Japanese cruisers hit the escort carrier White Plains Square in the side. But there was no explosion. Armor-piercing rounds were fused to detonate after punching through the thick sides of fleet carriers and battleships. The thin steel plating on both the jeep carriers and the tin cans weren't thick enough to trigger the round. Most of the shells simply went in one side and came out the other. USS Johnston continued to race through the multicolored geysers erupting all around her, some of them from a battleship that weighed 35 times more than Johnston did. Evans was expertly conning his ship using a simple but effective trick known as chasing the splashes. The reasoning went like this. If an enemy shell explodes in the water, that's a miss. And so the Japanese gunners would make a correction. Since the aim point had changed, the one place where the shell could not hit was where it was last time. Pretty simple, really. Captain Evans was charging the line of fast Japanese cruisers that were bearing down on Taffy 3. When the lead ship was 10 miles distant, Evans told his gunnery officer to target the leading ship and open fire. With all five turrets slaved to the gun director's radar, gyros, and analog firing computer, Hagen closed the firing key and all five of Johnson's turrets salvoed together. Compared to the booms from the 12, 14, and 18-inch Japanese guns, the 5-inch main battery of USS Johnston sounded like a Yorkshire Terrier yapping at a pack of barking Dobermans. Johnston's target, the Japanese heavy cruiser Kumano, returned fire. The rounds landed close enough to douse the entire crew with seawater, in this case dyed blood red. Hagen looked around at the five other men in the small gun director's platform, Looks like somebody's mad at us, he said. 
Weaving and darting, Johnston continued to close to torpedo range. Hagen, meanwhile, had managed to put 40 rounds into the Kumano superstructure, starting fires, shredding equipment, and killing anyone caught out in the open. These rapid-fire jabs so unnerved the Kumano gunners that they never put so much as a scratch on the American ship's paint. Stand by for torpedo attack, boomed Evans. Jack Bechtel, his torpedo officer, set his Mark 15s for long range, only 28 knots, but the Japanese cruisers were steaming right at them. Just after he got inside 10,000 yards, Evans shouted, All 10 torpedoes hit the water and dug in, and Bechtel was proud and pleased to see all 10 of them were running hot, straight, and normal. Left full rudder, shouted Evans. As the last torpedo hit the water, the agile Fletcher-class tin can came around fast, and Evans took her directly into the smokescreen he'd just laid down. Now, they could no longer see the Kumano, but that meant they couldn't see him either. Jack Bechtel was one of the best torpedo men in the fleet, and no one said a word as he stared at his stopwatch. At 7.24, right on time, there was an orange flash, and then one, and then two, and finally a third explosion, coming not through the air, but through the water. You felt it in your chest. As they raced back to their carriers, they could see bright flames through the smoke. The American destroyer USS Johnston had blown the heavy cruiser Kumano's entire bow section clean away. As Evans' destroyer steamed back towards the Jeep carriers in Taffy 3, the first pilots to get airborne had arrived on the scene. Ziggy Sprague had taken a risk and turned his carriers to the east into the wind and ordered every aircraft he had to get in the air while the thin wooden decks of the CVEs were still above water. One by one, the Avenger aircraft flew out to their torpedo attack positions and then started to begin their attack run on the Japanese fleet. Now, this was the most suicidally dangerous flying of the entire war. A torpedo pilot had to maintain a fixed heading at an altitude of about 50 feet or so, and the longer that they held onto their fish, the less time the target would have to evade and the more time enemy gunners would have to adjust their lead. Flying through a hurricane of fire, they made their individual runs on the nearest Japanese cruisers, which had to turn away from the American airplanes as they began their evasive maneuvers. Now, none of Taffy 3's torpedo bombers scored a hit that morning. And the reason for that is that none of the torpedo bombers had been carrying any torpedoes. They were bluffing, and the bluff worked. The Japanese cruisers continually broke off their pursuit to evade the incoming bubbling wakes that weren't there. The strafing, however, was very real. The 650 caliber machine guns in an F6F Hellcat could tear up people and punch through light armor. And when they ran out of ammo, they continued to make mock strafing runs through heavy fire to unnerve and confuse the enemy and draw fire away from any other planes making an attack. One pilot made a pass at a battleship and he gave it everything he had, which was the Coke bottle he hurled down at the steel mountain rushing below him. Another pilot pulled out his surface revolver and fired six rounds into a battleship. It was that kind of morning. By 7.15 that morning, Taffy 3 had been fighting and running for 15 minutes, which was already 10 minutes more than Ziggy Sprague thought he had when he saw the forest of Pagoda Mass coming over the horizon. 
Now, he still had six of his seven escorts in the usual anti-aircraft defensive circle around his Jeep carriers. At 7.16, he ordered his little fellows to make a torpedo attack. Aboard USS Hull, a Fletcher-class destroyer like the Johnson, Captain Leon Kintberger felt an enormous wave of relief. He'd watched the Japanese fleet getting closer and closer while Hull and her 10 torpedoes were idling along at half their top speed. He could actually see the individual shells in flight as they rumbled overhead, creating a deafening roar like the sound of a passing freight train. They were landing amid the small escort carriers, some of which were already burning. Since he was on the Japanese side of Taffy 3, he too ordered a hard turn to port and pushed to flank speed just as Ernest Evans was firing his torpedoes miles behind him. Stationed between USS Johnson, which had been long gone, and USS Hull, which was now turning to attack, was the destroyer escort Samuel B. Roberts. With a top speed of 24 knots, she could not keep up with the Fletchers, but she was five knots faster than the flat top she was screening. Her skipper, Bob Copeland, was unsure if he was supposed to join the attack. Destroyers were traditionally the little fellows in the Navy, but Sammy B. was two-thirds their size. So Copeland keyed the mic. Tappy 3-3, this is Juggernaut. The tiniest warship in the U.S. Navy had the call sign Juggernaut. Do you want the little, little fellows to go with the big, little fellows? Uh, Juggernaut, this is Tappy 3-3, your last transmission, negative, negative. The big fellows, meaning the Fletchers, form up for the first attack, and then the little fellows make the second attack. Tropical rain squalls, thick, opaque curtains of water had been scattered all around Sammy B all morning, and then right in front of them, the sleek gray lines of a third Fletcher-class destroyer came out of the rain and cut right across the destroyer escort's bow. It was the third and last of the big little fellows, USS Heerman, racing after Hull to begin the torpedo attacks. Now, Copeland had to make a decision. The other three little, little guys, the destroyer escorts USS Raymond, USS Dennis, and USS Butler, were on the far side of the six escort carriers. They would have to go through or behind or somewhere around them to make an attack. But Sammy B was on the business side, stationed between Johnson and the hull. They'd both begun their attacks, and now Heerman was racing after them. With the jeep carriers taking more and more hits, it didn't seem like there'd be anything to protect if he waited any longer. He surveyed the faces of his junior officers for a moment, and then he said, Well, sis on you, pister. Let's go. Juggernaut turned out of formation following the wake of the much faster Hull and Heerman. Copeland got on the horn to his chief engineering officer, Lieutenant Bill Trowbridge, whom he'd always called by his nickname, Lucky. Lucky, this is the captain. We're going on a torpedo attack, and I have rung up full speed. We're going in at 20 knots. As soon as we fire our fish, I will ring up flank speed, and I want you to hook on everything you've got. Don't worry about your reduction gears or your boilers or anything, because there's all hell being thrown at us up here, and we're just fortunate that we haven't been hit yet. Trowbridge hung up the phone and then ordered a machinist mate to head to the ship's boilers and turn off the safety valves. The boilers were rated for 440 PSI of steam pressure, but Trowbridge thought she might handle 660 without exploding. In any case, he was determined to find out. Back on the Johnston, the cheering over having knocked out a Japanese heavy cruiser was silenced by a terrific jolt as if the destroyer had run into a concrete wall at 35 knots. 
It knocked men flying across the deck, and a sailor down near sickbay said he remembered the sound of his steel helmet hitting the deck overhead. No one felt it harder than Bob Hoggan high up in the gun director's platform. It was like a puppy being smacked by a truck, he said. Johnston had been hit and hit by a battleship, likely the Congo. Three 14-inch shells, each weighing 1,500 pounds, tore into the ship's guts. One put a three-by-six-foot hole in the deck before hitting the reduction gears on Johnston's port side propeller shaft. It's one of the few things solid enough to have detonated the armor-piercing round. The second round sliced through critical electrical cables, plunging anyone below deck into total darkness. The third shell ripped into the after-fire room and detonated against one of Johnston's four boilers. The luckier men in that compartment were vaporized instantly or blown to pieces. The rest of them got hit by a high-pressure spray of superheated steam, 840 degrees hot. The few of them that managed to survive long enough to crawl up into daylight emerged absolutely snow-white from head to toe their boiled skins sagging from their bones and muscles. Mercifully, they were dead within a minute or two. Before anybody aboard could recover their senses, a second salvo tore into the Johnson. Six-inch shells this time. One punched through the after smokestack and detonated directly under Bob Hagen's gun platform. The other two slammed into the portside wing bridge and blew up almost directly inside the small pilot house, instantly created a pile of dead and wounded men. One shell exploded close enough to Ernest Evans to literally blast the shirt off of his back. He had shrapnel wounds in his face, neck, hand, and torso. When Lieutenant Robert Brown, the ship's medical officer, arrived a few moments later, he found a jumble of men and parts of men who he had assumed had been killed outright, so he started to attend to Captain Evans' wounds. Don't bother me now, he said. Help some of the guys who are hurt. Evans hunted around until he found a handkerchief and started to wrap it around his left hand. Two of his fingers had been blown off. The effect that high explosives detonating in enclosed steel spaces has on a human being is beyond imagining. Just to give you some idea of this kind of hell, sailors once entered a compartment after a battle was over looking for survivors. An old style steel spring mattress frame was propped against a corner and it was covered in blood. They'd expected to find a body behind the mattress, but whatever was left back there had been ground into hamburger. It took them a moment to realize that their friend and shipmate had not been behind the mattress when the shell exploded in the tiny compartment. He'd been in front of it, and the blast blew his body through the steel springs and mattress frame, taking the fabric and the padding along with him. Now, with a boiler gone and one of his two propeller shafts destroyed, Evans' tin can slowed to half speed, maybe 18 or 19 knots. The loss of electrical power had crippled her rudder, but a pair of strong men could, with great effort, manually turn the wheel that sent hydraulic fluid to the rudder. Now, just ahead of the Johnston, more sheets of rain from a nearby squall hung like a curtain from the clouds, obscuring everything behind it. Evans ran aft and shouted down to the men in the after-engineering compartment, and they started turning this enormous wheel until their captain told them to stop. Evans was heading straight into the squall, using it for cover. When the raindrops fell on the deck above the number two boiler room, they sizzled 
from the heat from the fires raging below. Aboard USS Hole, Captain Kintberger was running the same terrifying gauntlet that Johnston had just encountered. Hole's five-inch guns were barking in unison as she chased the splashes, heading not for the cruiser line, but directly at the Amato. They could plainly see the shells arcing away from the guns of the battleships. Each one of them was about the size of an oil barrel. One of them crashed into the pilot house, vaporizing four men in an instant and wounding her captain, although not too seriously. It was eerily similar to what Johnston had experienced just moments before. Now, back on the Yamato, they saw their target erupt in flame. An officer made a log entry. Cruiser blowing up and sinking at 725. He was wrong on two counts. First, his target had been a destroyer, not a cruiser. And second, and more to the point, Hull was not sinking, not yet anyway. The tin can had taken a salvo from the biggest naval guns ever forged and then emerged from the smoke and flames and green-dyed seawater and continued her charge directly at the Japanese flagship. Some distance behind Hull was USS Heerman, and behind Heerman was the Samuel B. Roberts, who was risking exploding her boilers like a smaller brother trying to keep up. USS Johnston, limping along at half speed, saw them heading into the attack when she emerged on the far side of the rain squall. Johnston was badly damaged and littered with dead and wounded men. Evans took one look at the three small, unarmored American tin cans that were charging towards the full might of Corita's center force. He was out of torpedoes, but he still had shells for his five-inch guns. They would be useless against a cruiser or a battleship, but perhaps he could draw some of their fire and give the other captains a bit more time to get in good and close and launch their ship-killing torpedoes. We'll go in with the destroyers and provide fire support, he said. And then two strong men strained against a stubborn steel wheel and slowly but steadily, Ernest Evans led USS Johnston back into the living hell he had just escaped from. USS Hole had run out of luck early. She got off her torpedoes at the enemy cruiser line before breaking off her attack, but she then took an even worse pounding than the one that Johnston had suffered. Her crew did have the satisfaction of seeing an explosion on the side of a Japanese cruiser the instant that the hull's torpedo officer had calculated them to hit. Heading away half as fast as she came in, she would be easy prey for the rapidly advancing Japanese fleet. Behind Hull came Heerman. Captain Amos Hathaway brought her in close to the lead cruiser. They were inside of 9,000 yards when Hathaway ordered his torpedo officer to fire five of his 10 fish. He had planned to put a second spread into the next cruiser in line. But in the excitement, the officer launched not five torpedoes, but rather seven, leaving only three for a second attack. Now, no one could know it, but this simple accident may have turned the tide of the battle. Dead ahead, the outlines of four huge battleships emerged from the rain, the last one being by far the largest ship that Hathaway had ever seen. The nearest was the battleship Haruna, whose guns rotated away from the jeep carriers and then immediately opened fire on Heerman with her main batteries. Her first salvo tore through Heerman's rigging and raised huge geysers of dyed water well behind her. 
Kierman returned fire, peppering Haruna's superstructure. They managed to pump 240 rounds into the looming Japanese behemoth, walking them back and forth across the entire length of Haruna's superstructure. This was so effective that Haruna ceased firing completely for four critical minutes, during which Kierman fired her last three torpedoes at her at point-blank range. They didn't have far to run. A single huge plume of water erupted just to beam the battleship's rear turret. But Hearman's great contribution to this battle was not due to the torpedoes that hit. What turned out to be much more important were the torpedoes from USS Hearman that missed. Hathaway's cruiser target had evaded his first spread of seven torpedoes, but the torpedoes kept on running at whatever happened to be behind them, which, as luck would have it, was the Japanese flagship IJN Yamato. Lookouts spotted the seven torpedo wakes from Hearman's initial spread, and here, Yamato's captain made an enormous mistake. He didn't turn hard to starboard into the incoming spread, minimizing Yamato's enormous broadside. He turned instead hard to port, away from the incoming torpedo tracks. Now, if they were to hit from that angle, they wouldn't sink Yamato, but they might take out a rudder, which would amount to the same thing when Halsey's carriers returned. Yamato went to flank speed and tried to outrun the two relatively slow American Mark 15s, which she eventually did. But by the time they were sure that the American torpedoes were out of fuel, Yamato had been heading directly away from the fight at flank speed for 10 minutes. And even worse, she took Center Force Commander Admiral Kurita with her. Not only could he not participate in the battle, for the better part of 10 minutes, he couldn't even see it. And when the giant Yamato finally made her turn back, the cruisers and fleet carriers Karita thought he was engaging were much further away and their true nature that much harder to identify. USS Hearman managed to get away without a scratch, for the moment at least. And finally, the last American warship got into the fight, DE-413 USS Samuel B. Roberts. At flank speed, she could make 24 knots, but somehow, Lucky Trowbridge had gotten another five knots out of her, and that might have made the difference. Captain Bob Copeland steered the Sammy B straight at the Japanese cruiser Chokai, which was pouring murderous fire into Sprague's escort carriers. Shaking hard enough to loosen her rivets, Juggernaut continued to close at 29 knots and then at 4,000 yards point-blank range. She fired all three of her torpedoes and then broke away, trying to hide in the smoke she'd laid down on the way in. A few seconds later, there was an orange flash from behind them. We got her, yelled Copeland to cheers from the entire crew. Having turned to follow Hearman, Hull, and Roberts for a second attack, USS Johnston found herself miraculously still afloat. As they emerged from their smokescreen, they were shocked at how close the Japanese cruisers had gotten to the six tightly packed escort carriers. One of them, USS Gambier Bay, was already listing hard. Evans, still shirtless and with a bloody rag covering the severed fingers of his left hand, looked up at his gunnery officer and pointed at the massacre taking place ahead. Commence firing on that lead cruiser, Hagen. Draw her fire on us and away from the Gambier Bay. Yelling steering orders to the men manually turning the rudder, 
Evans ran his shot up and bleeding tin can right at the Japanese cruiser, firing the whole time. Hagen was landing hits, but the cruiser paid no attention to the shattered destroyer and kept pumping rounds into the Gambier Bay. They had plenty of firepower to finish off the Johnston, but they didn't, and Hagen thought they were fools for ignoring him. And as it turned out, Hagen was right. Because an even more deadly threat had appeared. Japanese Destroyer Squadron 10, four fast Japanese tin cans led by the light cruiser Yahagi, and all of them armed with the deadly long lance torpedoes much faster than the American Mark 15 with a bigger warhead and a far greater range. They were racing at flank speed off of Johnston's starboard beam. If they could get around and in front of the Jeep carriers and with their 15 knot speed advantage, this would not take long. They would turn into the American flat tops and let loose their lethal long lances, all 40 of them, and that would be the end of Taffy 3. Lacking armored hulls and with very few watertight compartments, a single torpedo could very easily sink a frail CVE. And there was nothing there to stop them. The Japanese force was like a very fast and very tough wide receiver streaking down the sidelines through an open backfield flanked by four blockers and USS Johnston was a lone free safety with a broken leg. But that was Taffy 3's only hope, so the free safety started limping towards the sidelines to make the tackle. Now at five to one, this may have been the most even fight Johnston had engaged in all morning. Japanese destroyers like the American ones were not armored. Hagen's guns could sink them if Evans could keep Johnston afloat. Hagen kept pumping rounds into Yahagi, peppering her wheelhouse. Back in turret 55, gunner Clint Carter from Abilene, Texas, kept screaming down to the men in the ammo magazines, more shells, more shells. Carter was firing so rapidly and with such fury and intensity that one of his gun crew muttered, I sure am glad there ain't no Japs from Texas. And then, unbelievably, Yahagi turned hard to starboard and broke off the attack. Hagen had riddled her bridge area, alternating between the light cruiser and the destroyer next in line. A moment later, that destroyer too turned hard to starboard and it broke off the attack, and then the other three destroyers broke off to the west as well. Well, now I've seen everything, said Evans, and Hagen would later add, Commander Evans, feeling like the skipper of a battleship, was so elated he could hardly talk. Ernest Evans had forced the Japanese to fire their fish far, far too soon, while they were still well behind the carriers and at long range. A much, much tougher shot. Not one of those torpedoes would hit their target. By now, it was a little after 8.30 in the morning. Gambier Bay was finished. Within an hour, she would go under and become the only aircraft carrier to have been sunk by gunfire in the entire war. But the other five escort carriers were still miraculously afloat. One of the officers on Ziggy Sprague's flagship, the Fanshawe Bay, watched as the smallest warship in the U.S. Navy appeared from behind, crossed his wake, and then headed for the enemy heavy cruiser line at what seemed to be an incredible speed. Look at that little D.E. committing suicide, he said. It was the Sammy B. The heavy cruiser Chikuma turned two of her four turrets on the weaving and jinking little warship as she raced toward her and kept the other two hammering away at Sprague's Jeep carriers. But they were too late. Bob Copeland, 
with the help of Lucky Trowbridge and his men in the engine room, had managed to close with Chikuma so quickly that the Japanese cruiser's gun barrels could not depress low enough to hit her. Copeland had gotten under the guns of a Japanese heavy cruiser, which weighed 12 times what Juggernaut weighed, her two five-inch turrets shredding the Chikuma superstructure at point-blank range. The captain of the aft gun crew in turret 52 was gunner's mate third class Paul Henry Carr, a farm boy from Oklahoma who had cared for his five-inch mount with almost religious devotion from the time he'd come aboard. It was absolutely spotless, Captain Copeland would later remember. It's not an exaggeration to say that you could have eaten off the deck of that gun mount at any time. Our number two gun was the best I had ever seen, and I imagine one of the best that had ever existed. Both guns on the Roberts were slamming whatever rounds happened to come up from their magazines into the Chikuma. High explosive, armor piercing, star shells used to illuminate the surface of the sea at night, they fired those into Chikuma as well. In 35 minutes of nearly non-stop shooting, Gun 51, the forward mount on USS Samuel B. Roberts, fired an unbelievable 284 rounds. In that same period, Gun 52, after the stack, got off 324. By 9 a.m. on the morning of October 25, 1944, Japanese Center Force Commander Admiral Takeo Kurita had seen enough. He hadn't had a chance to sleep in two days. He had had his flagship sunk from under his feet the day before and been forced to swim to a destroyer with the rest of the survivors. He had lost the Musashi. And due in large part to his 10-minute sprint away from the battle aboard Yamato, he still believed he was up against Halsey's fleet carriers and screening cruisers. Up ahead of him, the ever-growing swarm of American dive bombers that had finally arrived from Taffy 2 had just put two 500-pound bombs into Chokai. He'd seen what American naval aviators had done to the mighty Musashi the day before. If he remained here, they would likely do the same thing to Yamato and everything else he had as well. At 9.11 a.m., he sent the following radio message to the ships of Center Force. Rendezvous, my course north, speed 20. The enormous golden chrysanthemum, adorning the bow of the most powerful battleship ever built, turned slowly away to port, away from the American carriers, and it continued to turn until it was pointed at its own mighty wake. The battle was over. Center Force was sailing home. The Empire of Japan's last chance for the single decisive battle that they had built their entire fleet for had failed. Nothing could stop the Americans now. Aboard Fanshawe Bay, Ziggy Sprague had just dodged the last of the enemy torpedoes and had turned to see what fresh hell was heading his way. To his utter disbelief, the Japanese were retreating. His quick thinking, the unparalleled courage of his aviators, and most especially of his tiny tin cans, had turned what would have been the greatest massacre in World War II into the greatest naval upset in U.S. history. Sprague stared open-mouthed, and he turned to his fellow officers to make sure he wasn't dreaming. They were just as stunned as he was. Then one of them yelled, God damn it, boys, they're getting away! Now, it was time to pay the bill. 
USS Hole never recovered from the beating she took once she'd launched her torpedoes and turned back for the relative safety of the smokescreen. She lay dead in the water as the entire center force passed her by, pumping more than 40 rounds into her before she finally rolled over to port and then sank by the stern. 86 of her crew survived, including her captain, Leon Kintberger. 253 men did not. She was the first of the Taffy Three ships to go down. USS Heerman, which had charged the Japanese battle line with such reckless courage, had come out of that attack without a scratch. But all of that came to a sudden end when she took a series of eight-inch shells to the bow from the Japanese heavy cruiser Chikuma. The flooding was so severe that soon her forward anchors were awash and Captain Hathaway feared that she might just porpoise under. But Heerman would survive the war. In the space of 10 minutes, her skipper, boyish, lanky Amos T. Hathaway, had engaged a Japanese heavy cruiser and four battleships with a single destroyer, and he lived to tell the tale. He was awarded the Navy Cross for his actions that day, and he passed away on August 26, 1996, at the age of 82. USS Samuel B. Roberts survived her point-blank duel with the Japanese heavy cruiser, but her luck finally ran out at 8.51 that morning. The tiny destroyer escort took three enormous 14-inch shells from the battleship Congo. The hits took out the electrical power to the turrets, which also meant the loss of the powerful fans that blew the hot gases clear of the gun's breach. But in spite of that, Carr and his team kept up their relentless hammering. Five or six shells after the loss of electrical power, the breach of the gun had become hot enough to detonate the round, and it exploded inside the breach of gun 52. Machinist mate Chalmer Goheen was the first on the scene. Looking into the carnage of Gun 52's turret, Goheen saw Paul Carr burned and bloodied and holding Gun 52's final five-inch round in his arms. He begged Goheen to help him load the shell. Carr's entire body had been ripped open from the top of his neck to the top of his groin. Goheen gently lifted the shell from his arms and helped lay him down on what had once been a spotlessly clean deck. He helped another survivor out of the turret, and when Goheen went back inside, Paul Carr, who had fired 324 of the 325 rounds in Gun 52's magazine, was on his feet again, holding that last shell, begging Coheen to help him load it. Coheen carried Carr out of the turret and laid him on the deck of the Sammy B, where he died a few moments later. Paul Carr, gunner's mate, third class, and captain of the after turret on USS Samuel B. Roberts, was awarded the Silver Star. He was 20 years old. At 9.35, Copeland gave the order to abandon ship. She went down half an hour later, taking 90 of the 215 men aboard her as well, including Chief Engineer Bill Trowbridge, whose luck had finally run out with his ship. Bob Copeland went into the water, joining the survivors of USS Hull, USS Gambier Bay, and USS Johnston. The Japanese had retreated to the north, Sprague's carriers continued running to the south, and the sailors of Taffy 3 found themselves alone in the open ocean. Now later that afternoon, an Avenger pilot circled the men, wagging his wings. The pilot returned to his carrier, and he reported the coordinates that he had hastily written down. But he'd gotten the position wrong, 40 miles wrong. The survivors endured the first night covered in thick diesel oil, which seemed to be an effective shark repellent. 
They spent the entire day of October 26 bobbing in the water free of the oil now, but not free of the sharks. Looking around at one point, Copeland counted 50 individual fins. By the second night, many of them had ingested so much seawater that the screams of delirium began to match the screams from the sharks. Many of the men became so thirsty that they suffered the same delusion. There was talk of a body of cool, fresh, clear water just a few feet below the surface, and many of them went down to drink it. One of Copeland's crew chiefs had told the skipper that he could see the Sammy B just a few feet below, and that he was heading down to the ship for a cup of coffee and then be right back. Copeland and a few others managed to restrain him before they drifted off to sleep, and when they woke up, his chief had gone for his cup of coffee, and he was never seen again. The survivors of all four of Taffy Three's sunken ships would eventually be picked up 50 hours after their ships went down. 116 of the men that had survived the battle and got into the water with their shipmates were not among them. Robert Copeland, commander of the USS Samuel B. Roberts, would survive the battle and the war. He would retire from the Navy as a rear admiral and was awarded the Navy Cross for his actions in the battle off Samar Island. He died in Tacoma, Washington in 1973 at age 62. Just before his ship went down, Bob Copeland watched as the battered hulk of DD-557 USS Johnston passed close by as she limped towards some new target for Bob Hagen's guns. I can see her right now, recalled the skipper of the Sammy B. She'd taken a terrific beating. I saw her captain. He was a very big man with coal black hair. His name was Evans. He was standing on the fantail, conning his ship by calling down through an open scuttle hatch into the steering engine room. I can see him now. He was stripped to the waist. He was covered with blood. His left hand was wrapped in a handkerchief. As he went by, he wasn't more than a hundred feet from us as he passed us on our starboard side. He turned a little and waved his hand at me. That's the last I saw of him. DD-557 had been the first to enter the fight and the last to leave it. Before they'd retreated, Japanese destroyers had surrounded her like the sharks that would be waiting for the survivors. They continued to fire on the burning hulk out of frustration and rage. Lieutenant Robert C. Hagen, the 25-year-old gunnery officer aboard DD-557, would survive his 50-hour hell bobbing in the open ocean, waiting for rescue. The last surviving officer of his ship's complement, he died in 2009 at age 90. At 10 minutes past 10, USS Johnston, whose flag had been flying defiantly over her own wreckage, rolled over and went down by the bow, sinking deep into the Philippine Trench. In October of 2019, the late Paul Allen's research ship, the Petrel, discovered the twisted wreckage of DD-557 lying 20,400 feet below the surface of the Pacific. It was the deepest shipwreck that had ever been found. Ernest Evans, the full-blooded Cherokee who had said he would put his ship in harm's way, and then did, went into the water with the rest of the survivors. Like so many other men to fight in the Pacific, he was never seen again. The last two sentences of Ernest E. Evans' Congressional Medal of Honor citation read as follows. Seriously wounded early in the engagement, Commander Evans, by his indomitable courage and brilliant professional skill, aided materially in turning back the enemy during a critical phase of the action. His valiant fighting spirit throughout this historic battle will venture as an inspiration to all who served with him. On October 25, 1954, 10 years 
to the day after the battle. Dudley Moylan, formerly an ensign aboard DD-413 USS Samuel B. Roberts, wrote a letter to the mother of his friend and fellow crewmate, John LeClerc, whose entire gun platform had been vaporized by a direct hit early in the battle. He was speaking about John and the Sammy B, but he was also speaking for all of the other men who had fought and survived the most remarkable victory in U.S. naval history. He wrote, It's very easy for me to think of the Roberts and her men as still sailing somewhere, only I'm rudely not with them. I miss them both, the living and the dead, and sometimes I can't remember in which group a friend belongs. They stay alive and they stay young while I grow old. Young and carefree, young all over, young and smiling like Johnny. It's a good way to remember them. 